So, let's get to God's Word. Acts 15. I've called this the battle for the heart of the Gospel. Because that is exactly what it was, the Jerusalem Council. But I want to get hold of a couple of truths out of this this morning and really try and apply them to our lives. So we're going to pick up reading from verse 1 of Acts 15, reading this unusual uh, sort of incident where there's a real conflict in the church. The church has been going well, but suddenly there is a major crunch uh, within the church itself between those who are from Jewish origin and are insisting on uh, Mosaic law being kept by the Christians. And this really sparks off for Antioch. And it might be interesting to some of you who know the Bible quite well to know that many scholars would say that Galatians, the book Paul wrote to Galatians, was probably written just prior to the Jerusalem Council. And there's lots of arguments for that, but one logical one is otherwise he would mention the council in Galatians and probably the disputes he talks about in the early chapters of Galatians happened in the Antioch context or just after and some of them may be even relevant to these opening verses. And he was writing into that and then the council brought some resolution to these issues. Um, That's just interesting. It's very relevant too to something I want to say later in, in my talk. So let's start from verse 1. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written... After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things that have been known for ages. 
It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city since from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Well, Paul and Barnabas go on with the wonderfully gracious letter that comes out of this council and travel back through the churches with Silas and others, men from Jerusalem, telling people the decision we've just read. And as part of that process, in chapter 16 and verse 1, Paul comes to Lystra. As part of that process, he came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they travelled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. It's a fascinating piece of scripture, absolutely historic turning point in church history, very important for all of us today, and I would say extremely challenging to everything, every vestige of legalism that still lingers in the church and probably in us. And it's quite a challenge to how we behave in the end as Christians. Let's get into it. Antioch was a wonderful church. Matthew Henry, who was an old Puritan writer, wrote about 350 years ago this. If ever there was a heaven upon earth, surely it was in the church at Antioch at this time. Antioch was like heaven on earth. It was buzzing with the Holy Spirit. People were getting saved. It was a big, lively church. All sorts of things. Prophets, prophecies coming, anointed gifting, people saved and delivered from from Satan's grip. Wonderful things happening. And yet, into that glorious church, trouble came. Trouble arose. This is a, a warning to all of us. There's no perfect church on earth. There isn't a church where you won't have hassle and trouble and conflict. Antioch was about as good as you can get, and they soon had trouble. So when you feel a bit peaceful and complacent and be careful, there's always something coming up. There's always going to be a battle. There's always going to be a struggle. It's not all bad. Sometimes it comes out of the blue. One thing or another will disturb that passive complacency. And I think we need to not be careful, be ready. I don't think we're just going to jog along complacently. There'll always be a a nice little breath of wind that God will send or maybe the devil's attack or maybe a dispute that will arise. And that certainly happens here. Because the success of the Antioch church provoked a lot of interest. And the Jewish believers, particularly the ones from the Pharisees' uh, background, they were very concerned about what was happening at Antioch. They were very happy that Gentiles had come to faith in Jesus Christ. That wasn't the problem. But they wanted them to embrace Judaism. They wanted them to embrace the law of Moses, and particularly circumcision as part of that, and therefore become part of what they saw as God's people defined by that law. They saw the gospel of Jesus Christ as a supplement to the the religious practices they already had, an add-on. Well, that's at least what some of them did. 
Now, that's not an uncommon thing today, that we see that Jesus is all right. He adds to what I believe. He adds to my particular rituals or practices. I add Jesus on. Well, that might have been one view. The other view, which is very similar in its outworking, is this way. Once people have started to know Jesus, that's fine. They now need a whole lot of laws and rituals and religious uh, practices to be proper Christians. They both have the same effect. You can either see that Jesus supplements your old religious ways, or you can see that you need religious ways to supplement Jesus. But they are both very common. So you've started, now you need to know all of this to do the job properly. Same battles today, the law plus Jesus, Jesus plus the law of some form or other. Some people do want to add Jesus to their beliefs and their ways of life, and their, their religious practices that they already have, and just put Jesus in there as well. Others say, right, great, you've come to know Jesus, and you've come out of a pagan background, now you also need to know a whole lot of rules and laws and practices which are very important, in fact, just as important if you're a proper Christian. So this provoked a critical battle for the heart of the gospel. And it is still relevant. What is it to be a Christian? What is the heart of the Christian gospel? And this important moment in church history resonates right down to today. And I personally find this subject enthralling, exciting and provoking. Though it is not a new subject, if you like, to me. I don't come to this thinking, oh, I've never thought about these things before. I've thought about them a lot, but they never, ever dull. And I don't want it to dull for you. In fact, it provoked me this week. I want you provoked by what I'm saying this morning. Let's talk about two things, radical truth and radical love. They're the two things I'm going to talk about. First thing, then, is radical truth. Jesus Christ brought in the new covenant. The new relationship between God and human beings. God has dealt with people historically through the ages with covenants, promises, terms he lays down. And we won't get into that subject this morning, but the great climax of God's dealings with men and women is the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Now this was long promised in the Old Testament. The prophetic promises are there again and again, particularly as the Old Testament period comes towards its end. And we read the prophets, Isaiah and Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and then the minor prophets, Joel and Amos. And it's clear that this new covenant would embrace the Gentiles, the non-Jews. It was for all people. James quotes just one quotation. He could have perhaps chosen many could have chosen several from Isaiah, but he quotes one from Amos, Amos 9, in verses 16 to 18 that we read. And that reminds the people who are listening to him that God's mission has always been world mission. It still is. God is on a world mission. He's always been on that. Even at the beginning of his dealings with Abraham, with the Abrahamic covenant, God has got his eye on the world. Through your seed, the world will be blessed. This will be for the world. This is for the world. God is big in his heart. He cares for all Adam's fallen children, all worldwide. Now, Jesus Christ's death and resurrection have brought this wonderful climactic age into reality. We are in the new covenant age. It's happened. Great David's son has come. The the, the root of Jesse has has branched out and we have the saviour, the Messiah. God is taking a people 
for himself. Now that phrase is very important and it's in verse 14. James uses it. It's quite interesting that James uses it. James is the leader in Jerusalem, probably more (coughs) of Jewish origins. He was probably the natural half-brother of Jesus Christ himself and he was a highly respected figure leading the church in Jerusalem. And sometimes his name had been used by the uh, Judaizers to sort of support what they were doing. James didn't support it. James is very clear, and this verse 14 is a very important phrase, that God is drawing a people for himself from the Gentiles. That phrase was used a lot in the Old Testament for the Jews, for Israel, a people for himself. Well, now, James said, it is clear that God is getting a people for himself from all sources, Jewish and Gentile, through Jesus Christ. There is no doubt that Jesus is fulfilling and going beyond the old covenant picture. There is a new people of God, a new community of God on earth, a holy nation, a chosen people, a people for God's, for himself, drawn from all nations in and through Jesus Christ. Very key sort of statement that he makes. However, the radical nature of this new covenant is a lot deeper than just defining more precisely or differently how the people of God are constituted. Here in these verses is an absolutely fundamental aspect of the new covenant and the gospel. And that's what I want us to take a moment or two to really major on this morning. And I'll use a few of the verses just as a backdrop. They'll come up on the screen. Let's have Acts 15 verse 1 for a moment. What these people were teaching was this. Unless you are circumcised, according to the the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. They were saying, unless you're circumcised, unless you have the Mosaic law, you cannot be saved. What does it mean to be saved? People can be saved. What's that mean? Saved means have all your sins completely forgiven forever. Be completely washed clean from everything you've ever done wrong before a holy God made clean. Saved means you have peace with that God. You can now know God as your heavenly Father and be in communion with him and be with him forever. You have eternal life. You're not going to hell, you're going to heaven. You're saved from destruction. You can be saved from the clutches of the devil. You can be saved from bondage to sin. And the big truth here is all of that happens. You are saved through faith in Jesus Christ alone. You cannot add laws to that. It doesn't require a supplement before or after. That is the only way you are saved. And that was the big thing. These people were saying you can't be saved unless it's Jesus plus. And the big statement being made by the apostles is that the revelation of the New Testament, New Covenant is you are saved by Jesus plus nothing. That is, that's awesome stuff. It's powerful. You see, all through church history, Christian groups try to add law to what Jesus did. We've all prone to it. Legalistic rules. Now, Actually, if you're going to have a law, the best one to have is the Mosaic law. Of course it is. The Mosaic law is revealed by God. It's part of God's overall revelation. It's in our Old Testament. 
If you want to be a legalist, do it properly. You should circumcise. You should go for the Mosaic law and all that is involved in it, all the food laws and everything else. That's the best one to have, obviously. But here, right at the beginning of church history, no. We, it's not Jesus plus the Mosaic law. Now, actually, anything else people add later is feeble compared to the Mosaic law. So if it's not Jesus plus the Mosaic law, it's not Jesus plus any law. Whatever evangelical or liberal or whatever ism, ism of Christianity has worked out its own little mix, it's not, none of it's going to be any better than the Mosaic law. So if you want a law, here's the best one. It's in here. And let's apply it then. Let's not cut our beards. Let's only not eat pork. Let's, let's, let's do the whole thing properly. Now, I'm not mocking anything. I'm saying that's there. And this is actually what these guys were saying, sort of reasonably at one level. We need Jesus plus the law. But the clear truth, and it is a wonderful truth, is you do not have Jesus plus anything. And you don't need the Mosaic law or any law at all. Let's look at a few familiar verses in Romans 3 that just remind us, that go up on the screen, of what a wonderful truth the gospel contains. It could not be clearer. In the gospel, you receive a righteousness, that means a holiness, from God. When you become a Christian, you don't get holy because you do anything. You get holy because God gives you holiness as a free gift. A free, unconditional gift. John Groves is righteous before a holy God. John Groves is not righteous because he does the right thing, but because he's in Jesus Christ by faith. A righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ, there is no difference. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, you can be righteous through Jesus Christ. Because it comes from God through Jesus Christ. No difference. That's the phrase that's in this very collection of verses. Why? Because everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jew, Gentile, every one of you in this room has a sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of you, on your own merits, will ever get a, a chance of standing before a holy God and surviving. You are, in his presence, history. There has to be another answer. It cannot be what you do. None of us have a clean sheet. On our own, none of us will ever have a clean sheet. However, we can be given a clean sheet. And its word is justified. You can be justified. I hope we, thank you, you're leaving this verse up. Justified. Justified in simple terms means just as if I'd never sinned. You can get a clean sheet, but you cannot ever produce a clean sheet. It can be given to you freely by God's grace. A free gift of a clean sheet, no cost, no law keeping, at the beginning or after. All through grace and through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a good gospel, isn't it? Now, that's Paul explaining it. Let's flick back to our Acts 15. I think the next one I want to put up is verses 10 and 11. Because Peter is expanding this truth in his own words right here at the Jerusalem Council. Peter makes the powerful point that centuries of law-keeping and circumcision did not save the Jews. We haven't done it. We've tried to do it for centuries, but it's not changed our hearts the Old Testament covenant it didn't change our hearts. We, we, we're not 
We haven't got a clean sheet. We're not changed. It's given us some hope. It's given us some direction, some survival hints, but it hasn't changed us. And he says what Paul was later to say. God's law is fine. The problem's on our side. He says, this is a yoke that we couldn't bear. We just couldn't do it. And if we couldn't do it, what do we expect the Gentiles to do? We haven't been able to do it. How are they going to do it? And Paul was later to put it in Romans 8 like this. The law was powerless because of our sinful nature. Our sinful nature renders the law powerless. There's not enough virtue in us to complete it and keep it. And so Peter powerfully says in his own words, it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. This is wonderful stuff. He's saying the Pharisees who have joined the church, and they had, some of them have been saved, are only saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, not because they're Pharisees. It's not because they've been like the Apostle Paul. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. In terms of legalism, he was the highest pinnacle. But he knew he was the chief of sinners. And he'd sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no hope of him getting close to God. He needed salvation through Jesus Christ. He needed grace and forgiveness and cleansing. And then Peter says something else here, which is wonderful. It's in verses 8 and 9, which I think will go up on your screen. Thank you. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them, that's the Gentiles, by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. Remember he's speaking primarily to a Jewish audience in which there's a lot of ex-Pharisees. Just as he did to us, he made no distinction between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. I find that last phrase one of the most powerful and moving I've read in this week. Do you know, to be a Christian is to have your heart purified. No law can purify your heart. If you become... Christianity is not a new set of laws. I'll tell you what it is about. It's about the Holy Spirit. And you cannot avoid... Christianity is about the Holy Spirit coming into you and purifying your heart. And the reason we like law is that's easier. That we can feel comfortable. I can do that. If I can nod all the right nods and jump and wink and do all the right laws, and you know, even if I circumcise myself and don't eat pork, then I'm all right. No, no. You are all right if you come to Christ in faith and the Holy Spirit comes into you and purifies your heart. And that is what real Christianity is. Real Christianity is your heart gets changed. Your heart gets changed. And if your heart isn't changed, it ain't the real deal. Your heart gets changed. And from the inside, you change. And it's always inside out in the right way. That is what grace is. It's your motives are changed. Your heart's changed. You might get the outside right all the time. You will fail. You will fall. But inside, God's purified your heart and he's renewing your mind because the Holy Spirit has come into you. They make a lot here in this case, in this uh, council, they make a lot of the work of the Holy Spirit. Signs of the Holy Spirit's presence are very important in establishing the new covenant. The new covenant is not, it's not law versus grace, it's law versus spirit. The new covenant is spirit. Everything's God's grace. The giving of the law was God's grace. The giving of the law was a manifestation of the grace of God to restrict evil and to bring a degree of, uh, of sort of protection to his people. 
and, and all sorts of things like that. So it was a grace act. But what the key difference between the old covenant and the new is the Holy Spirit. It's not law, it's spirit. What's changed us is not law, it's spirit. The change comes from the inside out. It's a work of the spirit. In Galatians, the letter that Paul may well have written around this time, you get this interesting bit where he's worried about what's happening. Look at verses 2 and 3. It'll go up in a moment. This is Paul. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? What a challenge. You receive the Spirit not by doing anything right, but by believing what you heard. You receive a purified heart, the Holy Spirit in you, not by doing anything of human effort, but by an act of faith in God's revealed word. It is a faith thing. You believe the word, you believe what you heard, and that's how all of this happens, says Paul. Then he goes on in verse 5. Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? <laughs> God's not going to do good things for you because you do the right things. If I get all my ducks in a row, God's got to do it. All sorts of laws. There's a multitude of laws across the world, across Christianity. We do all of this and make it by human effort. We line all this up. God's got to do stuff. God hasn't. God does stuff because of our faith in his word. It's all of grace, but if the human side is we believe what we've heard. That's the best way you can define it. We believe what we've heard. Does God give his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Well, the obvious answer to the question is the second. That's what Paul is provoking. You heard the gospel. You put faith in that and who Jesus is. And the rest, the Spirit of God began to move. And the Spirit of God began to change you. It's all about the Holy Spirit and faith. The new covenant is all about the Spirit and faith. Let's move on to radical love. And put these together, because this is very provoking to me as well. Circumcision is clearly of no value in getting right with God. In Galatians again, Paul wrote this. This is Galatians 6 and verse 15. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. I was just like, boing! Don't you feel that? Don't you feel like, whoa, this is sober. This is amazing. What counts as a new creation? Like, how do I get that? Well, put faith in Jesus. You know, I, you know, I could circumcise myself. I could do something about that. Well, some, <laughs> we don't want to. But you know what I mean? I could put up with that. I could do that if I have to. No, what counts is a new creation. How do you get yourself into a new creation? What are you going to do about that? What you're going to do is put faith in Jesus Christ. And receive the new creation by faith. You're not going to earn it. You're not going to deserve it. It's not to your credit. It's what you receive by faith, a new creation. Now, Paul is very clear. This is very clear. And the Jerusalem council was very clear. Circumcision is neutral, if you like. It's got no particular value either way. What counts is a new creation. So... 
What on earth is Paul doing having Timothy circumcised? Did you spot that in the reading? Acts 16 and verse 3. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey. The journey, by the way, is the journey of taking this letter round the churches. So he circumcised him. (laughs) Because of the Jews, he lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. I bet that was a bit of a disappointment to Timothy, don't you? (laughs) I thought, well, praise God for this Jerusalem council. What? Why on earth does Paul have Timothy circumcised? That is a question I want to ask, and I don't know that I'm fully going to answer. I'm going to give you some provocation as I receive it. I think this is a powerful example of a radical love for people that provokes you to do all you can to be available to reach them with the gospel. Just listen carefully. Once the principle had been established that circumcision was not necessary for salvation, Paul was ready to make concessions in policy to make it easier to share the good news of Jesus with Jewish communities. That is literally what we're looking at. The same Paul who wrote Galatians 6.15, possibly only a few weeks or months before this, is quite, once it's been established, circumcision is of no value, all that counts is a new creation. At a different level altogether, he is quite happy to say, let's get you circumcised so that the Jews won't have a problem hearing about Jesus from you. He wanted to remove any obstacle to being able to go to the synagogues, preach Jesus, or at least have an open door to talk to Jewish communities. Now, fascinatingly, this is very much a problem dear old Timothy would have had rather than some others. In Galatians, the same book I keep referring to, Paul is very clear that he didn't have Titus circumcised. Titus was not circumcised. Why? Because Titus was a full-on Gentile. Both his parents were Gentiles. He had no Jewish origins at all. But by Jewish law, Timothy was a Jew because he had a Jewish mother. But because he was uncircumcised, he would have been called an apostate Jew. In some ways, that was slightly worse than being a Gentile. And this was known about in his whole home area. Now, Marion asked me why. She said, what do they do? They pull his trousers down or something? No, sorry, just let's be real, let's relax. I think people were a lot more open in those days. I think you had communal baths, I think you had communal... Um, facilities, and I think people talked about things like that, like they tend not to today. And everybody knew that Timothy wasn't circumcised. I'll leave your imagination to decide how. But everybody knew that Timothy wasn't circumcised, yet he was technically a Jew, and that was a problem. If Paul went round with an apostate Jew on his team, he would not be treated seriously by any Jewish community, and they would not open their doors to him or their synagogue to him. They probably wouldn't open it, to a Gentile, fair enough. But Titus was a full-on Gentile, that was different. It looked as though Timothy was an example of running a coach and horses through Jewish culture and tradition, as though you didn't care about Jewish culture. That's what it looked like. So Paul was determined not to have that obstacle, and therefore, to Timothy's undoubted disappointment, he insisted that Timothy went through a small and painful operation. And it was known about and publicised 
wouldn't have suited us, would it, in Winchester? But everybody knew that Timothy had had this operation. So that Paul could say he is a proper Jew and you can't say that he isn't a real Jew by his origin. Nothing to do with his salvation, nothing to do with being right with Jesus, everything to do with being available to people to tell them about Jesus. What an interesting example. Paul was later to spell this out in 1 Corinthians 9. So we just put up those two verses, 19 and 20, though it's a massively interesting passage. There's a bit more verses than this, but look. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. Paul was prepared to be very flexible and significantly compromise non-essentials in order to remove any obstacle to engaging with a people and a culture in order to tell them about Jesus. And I think it's a pretty radical example. Coming right on the back of the battle over circumcision, that Paul should actually be able to clearly define a difference between getting Timothy just in the right place to be available to talk to Jews, compared to fighting tooth and nail that the only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ alone and faith in him. Paul had such a love for the lost, such a passion to tell everybody the gospel, a passion to tell his own people the gospel, which comes out in Romans. You can read it for yourself. Is it about Romans 9, 10, 11? About 11. He said, I wish I myself were, 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 were cast away from Christ that they should come to know him. He had a passion and he would be prepared to, to, to compromise, be flexible to quite a high degree in order to reach people with the good news. And yet, he's absolutely clear that circumcision has no value at all for salvation. This is nothing to do with that at all. It's not making Timothy a better Christian remotely. But it's not undermining Timothy's authentic Christian faith either. And that I find very challenging. All week I've been thinking, what are the parallels for us? And I haven't really got all the answers or any answers. It's something you can do over lunch this week. <laughs> over lunch today and this week. Because we haven't got life. What are the parallels? I mean, should I get tattooed and body pierced? I've thought about it. Not that seriously. I mean, what, what is it? I mean, how do I make myself... So I would make myself more acceptable to most of the people I move with. My neighbours, middle-aged men, sort of Victor Meldrew lookalikes, don't need me to be tattooed and body pierced. But Christians can get very uptight about that sort of thing. But there are some things that, that just make people are more available to move in certain circles. Why do they have to change? They don't all have to look like John Groves, do they? When you become a Christian, apart from the ladies, you have no chance really. But when you become a Christian, all the men have to look, look like a middle-aged man. No, they don't. Wear a tie and all those daft things. No, they don't. I just like this. I like ties. Um, but, you know, Look, come on, what is the equivalent? I haven't even got the answers, brothers and sisters. But this is very radical. It's, I got the principles clear. That where there are significant compromises and flexibilities in policies and practices that make it easier for various people or people groups to listen to the gospel and treat it seriously, where that is not important. It's not saying, well, all Christians must look like this. No, I, that's rubbish. They even got here in Acts 15, they were 
producing a dynamic where Jews and Gentiles could be together and they didn't all have to be circumcised or uncircumcised. They could be both. Depends on whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. But actually, more important is you're in Jesus. It's radical stuff. It's radical stuff. It's an ability to see the difference between the heart of the gospel and superficial legalistic policies, which are totally different, which may have a lot of value, but are not the same thing. I've been challenged. I would say there are very few policies and practices that shouldn't be broken and set aside for the sake of reaching people with the gospel. And I think we have to be careful. I I speak to myself, I speak to my fellow leaders, I speak to us all. What do we think is so important, but it's not God doesn't think it's important. Well, we've decided this, that's important. Well, it's not important if it's keeping people away from Jesus. It's not important. It's keeping away from people from Jesus, let's break it up and change it. Let's do stuff that makes people engage with us and helps us to engage with them. And let's not impose on people a something that creates a barrier between them and unsaved people. See, actually, that's sort of the Timothy thing. He, he sort of have ended up with a huge barrier because he was a Jew, but he wasn't a proper Jew, and everybody knew that. Let's make him a proper Jew, then he can tell them about Jesus, and then they realise they don't need to be circumcised. Bit of a strange truth, but it's a truth. That's, so Paul was after getting an engagement with the Jews that would end up telling them, and actually, through Jesus Christ, you don't need the law anymore anyway. <laughs> but it's wonderful to be able to understand that. And I know I'm leaving you thoughtful because I'm thoughtful. Not because I want to go give you a bad time, but I want to be provoked by this. I want to be provoked. Again, dear old Matthew Henry, writing those 350 years ago, Puritan writer, says this, about this verse actually. There is a, not this verse, about this problem, this issue. There is a strange proneness in us to make our own opinion and practice a rule and a law to everyone else. There is a strange proneness in all of us, let me repeat it, to make our own opinion and practice a rule and a law to everyone else. But there are some important principles we need to grasp out of this. That there is a love for others that will make us flexible sometimes. We can hold to principles and be flexible on practice. Actually, the whole of this Acts 15 thing reflects that in another way too. The bit where they, they do the, uh, the food thing. Acts 15, I'll put it up there just to remind you. Acts 15 verses 28 and 29 has often created problems itself for Christians, certain Christians. This is the bit where they actually put it in the letter. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Now, let's leave it for a moment. Leave it up for a moment. Christians through history have turned that into a set of rules. And you can easily see why. They say, well, this is a new law. It's not a new law. It's not a timeless set of rules. What it is, is a pastoral appeal calling for loving, sensitive response from the Gentiles. It's actually the same thing. It's about love. It's about the Jews are accepting that you don't need to be circumcised. Now, you need to be clear in coming away from your pagan roots. That's what it's basically saying. It's beautifully put. It's graciously put. It says it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us not to burden you. The last sentence, you will do well to avoid these things. It's an appeal. In its setting, 
In the first century, in the eastern Mediterranean, these would have been a brief summary of the broad characteristics of all pagan lifestyles. And the Jews hated it. They hated what they ate. These people ate all sorts of things that the Jews found physically repulsive. They behaved, sexual immorality is a broad term, it's not only about adultery and stuff like that, there are all sorts of gross practices that went on normally. And actually, what this is saying is, when you get saved, you're going to change. Your hearts are purified, make sure you come clear from your old background. That's what it's saying, and it's highlighting a few of the broad sort of main points that would particularly have caused great offence to the Jews. Abstentions from things like eating, uh, the, you know, blood, eating certain animals, things like that. These are basically saying, look, we want a church that's one church. We want the Jews and the Gentiles to be able to have table fellowship, to be united in Christ. So you guys, we're not asking you to be circumcised, but when you come to come to Jesus, obviously you've got to work out the way that brings changes in your own life. You will find the Holy Spirit leading you out from your pagan lifestyles. And some things will be very difficult for Jews to accept. If you still insist on eating certain blood and animals, you'll never be able to sit and eat together. So we're appealing to you, just take heed to the changes that happen in your own life. Now, honestly, that is what it is. It's not a new set of rules. It's not a new set to take into the 21st century and you can't have black pudding with your breakfast. Now, Christians have done that all through history. The whole thing is about a purified heart. My final appeal. Get this. Even the time is flexible, you rascals who are looking at it. Get this. Everything's flexible. Get you need a purified heart. It comes from the inside out. You don't set rules for each other. What people would want to do with this thing, I know what they'd want to do. They'd want to send the deacons around to see if you've got black pudding in the fridge. Or... Or then, there's even another extreme. The other extreme is to say, I'm free to drink blood. I'm going to drink blood in front of you. No, both are wrong. Both are wrong. The appeal is to love. Look, Paul was there to say, ah, if, if eating meat causes my brother to stumble, I won't eat meat. Oh, are you putting yourself under the law? Of course I'm not. Meat, law, law, law's irrelevant. I love my brother. And if, if eating meat stumbles him, I won't eat it. That's the spirit of the whole thing. It's nothing to do with law. It's all to do with heart and love. Yeah, I, can, I don't judge people on externals. I don't, I don't think I've got to get my outside right. I've got my inside right. I'll be motivated by love for God and love for people. This is what the answer is. I will do things out of faith, not out of fear. Not out of fear of what people think of me. I'll be more concerned with what God's thinking than what people think. I will accept people who are different from me if they love Jesus. And I know they've got a heart for Jesus. The problem of what they look like is irrelevant. That's our unity. I will understand that God is more interested in why I do things than what I do. That is true. God is more interested in why you do things than in what you do. That's God's agenda, is why are you doing it? Your agenda is what? Have I got it right? Am I looking okay? No, God's agenda is why? Always. He can cope with the what's. They might not always get right. You might get the what's in a bit of a mess. But the why is what matters. It's from the inside out. Above all, your obedience to God will be a grateful response to what he has already done for you, not a dutiful response to what you think you have to do for him. That is the key difference between legalism and grace. That all your obedience to God will be a grateful response 
to what he has already done for you and not a dutiful response to what you think you have to do for him. And that is the fundamental difference between real Christianity and all legalistic substitutes. Amen. Come up here, my mighty men of God. And God help us, because I think we're always battling it. I battle it. I really do. I was very provoked preparing this talk. I really was. I thought, God help me. How, Lord, help me to be totally moving out of what you've done for me. Love for people. Love for you, Lord Jesus. May God help us to live lives free from legalism. Free to walk in the Spirit. Free to love God. And free to love one another. And free to love the unsaved who don't yet know about Jesus. Amen. Let's finish with a song.